Well, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, as we once again come into your presence in prayer, in thanksgiving, in acknowledgement of who you are, you are worthy. You are worthy of our praise and our adoration. You are worthy of our gratitude. You are worthy of our lives to be lived for the glory of your name. As we sang a little earlier about following you when you move, we want to move when you when you stay, when you wait, we want to wait. Or I think about Israel in the desert when the, the cloud hovered over the, the tabernacle and when the cloud lifted and moved, they gathered their stuff and they went. And when the cloud stopped, they stopped. When the cloud stayed, they stayed. God, that we would follow You in the same way. That we would look to You in Your Word for direction and guidance. We would be aware of the work of the Spirit within our lives. We would have our eyes open to the opportunities that are before us day after day. We would recognize that we are on mission with Christ each and every day. And that there are people all around us that we interact with, that we have a relationship with, we work beside, or we come in contact with regularly through the rhythms of our daily lives that do not know who Jesus is. Or some do and they're discouraged and they need an encouraging word and they need somebody to remind them to look up. And we may very well be that person. So God, give us eyes to see. Give us courage to step into opportunities. And God, this morning as we look at your word, we ask that you would help us to be attentive, to hear what you have to say to us as we look to Jesus. It's in whose name we pray. Amen. Somebody once said the first great gift we can bestow on others <clears throat> is a good example. Before we speak with them, before we share with them any good news about Christ or, or encourage them in some way, we can live before them a good example. Another person said, one example is worth a thousand arguments. Rarely does anyone ever become convinced to put their faith in Christ based on an argument. But many, by observing someone's life, can see Christ in them. And God oftentimes uses <clears throat> those examples to soften hearts so that when they hear the gospel, they can respond. And even though Jesus did not come primarily to be an example to us, but a sacrifice for us, nonetheless, He did 
put on display for us to observe perfect humanity. He lived in such a way that we can learn from his life. Because as he walked this earth in full humanity, he trusted the Father. And he walked by the Spirit. And we are called to do the same. And so we can learn from Him. And as we continue in our series on looking at these seven sayings from the cross, today we want to take a look at two of them that reveal the humanity of Jesus. We find these in John chapter 19. These two sayings come very close in the, in the text, just a few verses apart. And so we're going to look at both of them this morning. Let me start reading in verse 23 to kind of, again, get us back to the, the context of what's happening here as Jesus is hanging on the cross. John 19, we'll start with verse 23. And the soldiers, therefore, when they <coughs> had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. And so they said, therefore, to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, that said, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Here we see the first of these two that we're going to look at today, sayings of Jesus, which reveal about Jesus this, that Jesus is a compassionate man. He is a compassionate man. And he displays his human compassion in this interaction. What is compassion? Compassion can be defined this way. A deep internal emotion accompanied by a positive external action. A deep internal emotion that is accompanied by a positive external action. Action. Compassion is more than empathy or pity. Uh, oftentimes we think about empathy and it's this feeling, this, this emotion that we feel towards someone who's suffering or going through something difficult. We feel for them. Compassion takes empathy the next step. Compassion not only feels for them, but acts on their behalf. To alleviate the problem. To somehow meet a need in their life. And so Jesus displays his human compassion in this interaction with his mother. This is the third uh, interaction Jesus has on the cross. The first was this prayer to the Father. He's interacting with the Father on behalf of those who are responsible for his crucifixion as he prays, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. The second interaction we looked at last week was his interaction with the thief on the cross. And he said, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And this third interaction is with his mother and the, and the, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we know to be John, the disciple John. That's how he referred to himself throughout the entire Gospel of John as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so in this interaction, he looks to his mother and he says, Behold your son, referring to John. And he says to John, Behold your mother. And what he's saying there, as the oldest son to his mother, he's responsible now that she's a widow and she cannot, in that culture and that society, have taken care of her own physical needs. He is responsible for that. And so he knows he can't continue doing that in his flesh because he's, he's dying on the cross and soon he will be going back to his Father in glory. And so he, he takes that responsibility and he places it on one of his disciples so that John would provide and protect his mother, his earthly mother, and, may, and meet her needs. One commentator said, the anguish and terror of Jesus' mother at the crucifixion must have been indescribable. Jesus' tender concern for her in the hour of his own mortal agony illustrates his true humanity and compassion. Jesus was a compassionate man. And he had compassion for his own mother here, and he displays that for us in this interaction. And so we see one of the truths about Jesus as a, and his human compassion is that Jesus cares about human needs of others. He cares, and he does something about it. We see in Mark chapter 8, uh, as Jesus was teaching the, the 4,000 men and then their wives and children, he says, in those days again, Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, when there was a great multitude they had nothing to eat. And he called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the multitude because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their home, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a distance. He's concerned for their physical needs. He has compassion. And so what does he do? says, let's feed them. <laughs> and then we have this miraculous feeding of the 4,000 with a few loaves and a few fish. Jesus cares about the human needs of us. We don't often think like that. Right? We think more in terms of the spiritual needs only. But you know, Jesus cares about your needs. He cares about what you're going through. He cares about what you're experiencing and what you need. And we can look to Him for our needs. Now, we get confused over needs and wants, especially in affluent society. We often think all the things that we have for our benefit and our pleasure, we, we associate those things with our needs. And so it is hard for us to kind of see the difference at times. 
But Jesus does care, and Jesus provides our needs, and oftentimes more than our needs, and, uh, and what a blessing that is for us at times. But I, w- I want to speak to something that, that is uh, oftentimes, I think, a problem, particularly uh, within, within um, conservative uh, evangelical fundamental churches like ours. Uh, because we, we are um, against what is called the social gospel movement, uh, we, we tend to swing the pendulum uh, maybe too far the other way. Let me, let me explain to you what the social gospel movement is. I'm going to read a paragraph from Miller, Miller Erickson's book, um, His Christian Theology. He says, The social gospel movement of the late 19th and early 20th century was convinced that the basic human problem lies not in a perverted human nature, but in an evil social environment. According to this view, there is no point in trying to change individuals or they will be thrust back into a corrupt society and be infected again as it were. Humans are not essentially evil in that thinking. They are whatever their environment makes them to be. So instead of attempting to cure individuals who are corrupted by society, we must, have, we must alter the conditions leading to their illness so we might say that the ad- advocates of a social gospel were proposing a sort of spiritual public health ministry. We fundamentally disagree with that. Because we believe that people are not basically good, but inherently evil because of their sin nature. Therefore, we fundamentally disagree with this mentality, this movement. And it isn't very interesting that if you take the spiritual piece out of it, we see this is the mentality of our government today. Right? People are basically good, and people would not act in, in harmful ways towards society if society was a better place. So let's change society. It doesn't work. Because people are not basically good inside. But here's our problem. We've swung the pendulum because we've so fundamentally rejected that whole mentality. We have oftentimes swung the pendulum so far the other way that we have basically uh, said that human needs are not our concern at all. Only God is only concerned about spiritual needs. Well, that's not completely accurate. Jesus does care about our physical needs. And we should as well as believers. But we should never neglect the spiritual reality. So we should not, as believers, be spending all of our time trying to feed the poor and the needy without bringing them the gospel. Because what good is it if we keep people alive if they're still going to go to hell when they die? So we want to meet those needs, but we also bring the gospel to bear as well. But it's important, I think, for us particularly in the context in which we are as a church in this, that we do not neglect the spiritual or the, the physical needs um, and, and, and not, not seek to meet those and help people in that. And I found myself um, struggling with that as well. I figured if I struggle with it, maybe some of you do as well, that whole mentality. Um, because Jesus was compassionate toward people and toward their needs. He then commands us to love one another. We see this 
again, we see him displaying that kind of love for his mother and, and John in this, in this saying from the cross. But we know, as we go back to John chapter 13, when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, after he displayed for them what it looks like to serve one another by, by washing their feet, he says, a new commandment I give to you. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. That you love one another, even as I have loved you. So love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so he commands this love for one another. He shows us in this interaction his kindness and his compassion and his love and consideration uh, for his mother that puts on display for us. And Paul tells us if anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we, are, we know that in Scripture we are called and we are commanded to love one another, to care for one another in our physical needs. And Jesus said, by this, by the way that we treat one another, by the way we love one another, the world will know who we are and whose we are, that we are his disciples. In fact, John MacArthur says this, the Lord's command to love extends beyond the church to embrace all people. Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians was that they would increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. He exhorted the Galatians to do good to all people and especially those of the household of faith. The writer of Hebrews charged his readers, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by, by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. He says, the Lord's statement, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, reveals the effect of believers having love for one another. And that is this, that the world will know that we belong to him. The church, he says, may be orthodox in its doctrine and vigorous in its proclamation of the truth, but that will not persuade unbelievers unless believers love each other. In fact, Jesus gave the world the right, he says, to judge whether or not someone is a Christian based on whether or not that person sincerely loves other Christians. So the question is, would an unbeliever, by watching you, and the way you treat your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, the way you speak to them, the way you speak about them, would they conclude by hearing you, by watching you, that you are indeed a follower of Jesus? Is there, would there be any doubt? Or are there things within your life that you say, well, Maybe most of what I do if they watch, but, but are there times in which they could conclude that <laughs> I'm no different than the rest of the world? It reminds me of, of uh, the, the church of Ephesus in, in Revelation 2 when, when uh, Jesus is giving a message through John to the seven churches. And to the church of Ephesus, he says, write this. I know your deeds. I know about your toil and perseverance. 
I know that you cannot endure evil men and that you, you are put to the test those who claim to be apostles and they're not. You've found them to be false and, and you have perseverance and you've endured for my name's sake and, and all these wonderful things. And he says, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember where you've, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at once or else I'm coming to you and I'm going to remove the lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Is that an indictment? And I can't help but, but think that that reflects in many ways conservative fundamental churches. We're all about right doctrine. We, we, we're all about calling people out who are, who are false teachers. But if we don't have love, Paul says we're like a clanging cymbal, an annoying cymbal. What kind of a witness are we for Christ if we have not love? Which is why Jesus commands us to love one another and why he says the world has the right to judge you based upon this. One of the things that I, I ask the Lord for is to have the same eyes of, that Jesus had as I look at people because I can be cynical. I can look at people and, and think, man, you know what? They're, they're in the predicament they're in because, because they made bad choices and because they're a real bonehead sometimes. But Jesus, according to Matthew chapter 9, 36-38, Seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw them differently than we do, than I do. He saw the world. He saw unbelievers as like sheep without a shepherd. Just going around, distressed, depressed, Stressed out. They don't know where to go, where to find nourishment. They don't know where to find rest. The enemy's all around them all the time, and they're harried and hurried and, and all kinds of things that are a part of our, our culture. Jesus saw them with compassion. And then he said to his disciples, here's what you're to do. As you look out at the world that is desperate in need of the shepherd, He says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. And so, our prayer to be, God, give me eyes to see people the way you see them. And when we see them the way he sees them, it will prompt us to pray, God, would you send more people out? Would you send more people out to rescue those who are perishing? And I'm telling you, if we see that way, and if we pray that way, the next thing that happens is we feel this little thing inside of me that says, what about you? Are you willing to be a part of the answer to that prayer? You see them as sheep without a shepherd. You're praying that God would send somebody. How about you? 
And that we would say, as Isaiah said, when God says, who will go for me? And you say, here I am, send me. I'm available, Lord. Most of us, God is not going to send somewhere else. He's going to send across the street. He's going to send to the next cubicle. Jesus commands us to love one another. Jesus commands us to live this love out in a relationship. He puts on display this human compassion and he is an example to us. We ought to have that same compassion for other people. And then we come to that next statement that that once again reveals the humanity of Jesus. And we look in verses 28 and 29. It says, and after this, John does not talk about the six hours like the other gospel writers do. You know that he, Jesus was crucified at the, at the sixth hour, which was nine, uh, I'm sorry, the third hour, which was nine o'clock in the morning. And then at the sixth hour, which is noon, something happened from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. And that is darkness came over the whole land. Jesus spoke these first three sayings. Father, forgive them. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And this, this interaction with his mother and John, all of those happened in the first three hours when it was light. Then for three hours, darkness came over all the land. And Jesus didn't speak till the end of that three hours. And he spoke four things. But we believe that in those three hours of darkness, it was the Father was pouring His wrath out upon His Son, Jesus, and He was paying for the sins of you and me and all of us. And He was experiencing the, the just consequences of sin because He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And He experienced that. At the end of that, that last three hours, the end of those six hours, Jesus spoke four more times, one of which we already looked at, which was, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A quote from Psalm 22. And here's another one he spoke. It says, And after this, Paul, or John is basically saying, After these all things have happened, and again, from a, from a time frame, we know this is at the end of that six hours, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. And so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon his branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And he took it. And we know, again, from the other gospel writers, this happened at the very end of those six hours. He spoke these words to fulfill Scripture. Psalm 69 prophesies that Jesus would experience this. But this statement also reveals the fact that Jesus is a human being. He's thirsty. And so Jesus displays his human nature in this statement, which was a fulfillment of Scripture. But it also revealed that Jesus is fully human. Jesus took on full humanity. When he came to earth, he took on full humanity, yet without sin. We can go to many different passages in the New Testament that speak about this reality. 
one of which I already quoted in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, referring to Jesus. Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 8 tells us that, that we are to have the same attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He took on full humanity, and yet did not sin. Hebrews chapter 7, and I invite you to turn there, because we're going to spend a little bit of time in Hebrews as we conclude our, our time together this morning. But in Hebrews 7, we see again, we are reminded that Jesus Christ was without sin in full humanity. In Hebrews chapter 7, I'll start reading in verse 23. Let's kind of see what he's talking about here. But he says, And the former priests, again, he's talking about the whole sacrificial system and the priests and doing their sacrifices daily, all that. He says, The former priests, on one hand, existed in greater number because they were prevented, from, uh, they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, referring to Jesus, on the other hand, because he abides forever holds his priesthood permanently. Hence, also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin and then offer them for the other people, as the high priest and all the other priests did. Even on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could only go into that, that Holy of Holies after he had made atonement for his own sins. Jesus had no sin, did not have to do that, because he was separated from sinners. He was without sin. So we see he took on full humanity, yet without sin. That's why he is such a great example to us. Because although he existed as God and never, never ceased to be God, he took on full humanity and he operated in his humanity. He chose not to operate in his deity. So he lived out before us in trust of the Father's will in under the power and direction of the Holy Spirit what it looks like for us to live. And that's why he displays for us perfect humanity. We want to talk about the implications of his humanity. Just share three that come right out of Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 4 because it's important for us to see this about Jesus. Chapter 2 of Hebrews, verses 14 through 18, says this. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same. Flesh and blood, right? That through death, his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, which is the devil. And might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels. 
but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be like, uh, made like his brethren in all things, that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Since he himself was tempted in that which he also suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. One of the implications of Jesus' humanity is that he became a sufficient Savior. Because he took on flesh and blood, he was able to give his life in our place. Notice he says in verse 16, he does not give help to angels. Jesus didn't become an angel. He became a full human being. So his death on the cross was for humanity, not for angelic beings, which is why those angels who have fallen, who have, who have um, chosen to follow uh, Lucifer, cannot be redeemed. Because Jesus didn't come for them. He came for us. Praise God. He took on full humanity that he might be a sufficient Savior, which is why at the end of verse 17 it says to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a big theological word that means simply the, just, the, the, the um, satisfaction of, of, uh, of God's just punishment. He became a sufficient Savior. Secondly, he became a merciful and faithful high priest. Right, verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to become like us that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Things pertaining to God. He was tempted in every way like us. So he's able to understand. He's able to come to the aid of us. We go to chapter 4. We see the same thing in verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast this confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. He is able to sympathize. Jesus knows what it's like to go through what you're going through. He knows what it's like to be rejected by people. He knows what it's like to be, to be uh, talked about behind his back. He knows what it's like to go without certain things. He experienced... All of these things. He experienced temptation to a degree that you and I will never experience because he never gave in to it. In fact, we see in the Garden of Eden, or the Garden of, of Gethsemane, when he was wrestling, he knew that he had to go to the cross and he was praying to the Father, if there's any way possible for this cup to pass from me, yet not my will but yours. He sweat drops of blood. And, and, and I'm not a, a medical person, but from what I've read, that there's a medical condition when you are so incredibly stressed and burdened that you can actually have uh, droplets of blood come through the pores of your skin. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer anguish. He knows what you and I are going through when we are agonizing, when we are having difficulty. And it says he sympathizes with us. He can come to the aid 
It's incredible to understand, to look to Him for these things. If we only focus on the divinity of Jesus, that He was God, then we think, how can He understand? When we understand He's full humanity, and yet never gave in to sin, He knows, He experienced these things. He can understand. That's a comfort. And then we know that when we go to Him, He's able to help because He knows what we're going through. And so in verse 16, we're told, since we have this great high priest, and what's the role of a high priest? High priest is the liaison between us and God. And Jesus is that, mediator. He's making intercession for us, as He said earlier. And so we come to verse 16. Let us therefore, in light of this knowledge of who Jesus is and the compassion that He has for us, let us therefore then draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because this throne is a throne of grace and it is in that place that we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The more desperate our need, the more gracious and merciful He is. so we can draw near to Him with confidence that we know He hears us, He cares about us, He is able to do something about it, He understands what we're going through, and He can meet that need. We have confidence because Jesus walked where we walked. And because He made the way available through giving His life for us. And the last implication that I want to mention uh, it kind of gets back to what we talked about before, and that is that he became a great example. And his full humanity provides a great example. He does not command us to love one another in a way that he did not love us, but he says specifically, love one another, even as I have loved you. Most of us maybe through life, have had a boss or someone over us tell us to do something that they're not willing to do. Right? That's frustrating. Because sometimes what they're asking us to do is really hard to do. And if they've never done it, they don't understand how hard it is. Or maybe even what would seem impossible to do. Jesus is not that kind of a leader. Jesus says, do what I have already done. What I've shown you. What I've given you as an example. Do it. And He gives us His power through His Spirit to live it out. And then Peter, Peter again reminds us of this in 1 Peter 2, 21-24. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth, and while He was being reviled, He did not revile in return, and while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus lived this. And he calls us to follow him. To follow his example. And as he lived, we live. As he trusted the Father, we trust the Father. As he was reviled, he did not revile in return. As he was suffering, he did not utter threats. 
but kept saying, Father, you know what you're doing. And when he was in that hour of greatest agony, I, I, if there's any other way that this can be accomplished without me having to go to the cross and drink this cup, let it be so. Yet, he entrusted himself to the Father and said, yet not as I will, but thine be done. Can we say that in all honesty? When we're going through our hardest hour, our most difficult time, when we don't know what to do with this situation, when everything inside of us wants us to react in anger, wrath, frustration, um, bitterness, unforgiveness, I mean, all those things, our flesh wants to go that route. But we know it's wrong. We say, okay, God, help me trust you with this situation. And guide me to re respond as Christ would respond. That's what we're called to. Because Jesus is a compassionate man. We are called to be compassionate people. Because Jesus trusted himself to the Father. We're called to trust ourselves to the Father. And follow him. Would you stand for the benediction? Father, we understand that these are hard things. Hard to be like Jesus. But that's what you call us to. Jesus said, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Father, that we would follow. We don't have to understand everything to follow. We just need to know who it is we're following. And we need to do what he does. God, help us to act like Jesus. And Lord, I pray that in each of our lives that you might show us one thing. One way. That we can be more like Jesus this week. That we can be intentional, mindful, prayerful. Something in our life. Lord, not something that we already do well, but something that we struggle with. Something that we don't do well. Something that we don't like to look at in our life because it's not good. Lord, let's see that thing. Help us to trust that thing with you. Help us to walk by faith. And God, may I be so bold as to ask you to give us specific opportunities to put that into practice. Even when it's hard. That you might help us to be more like Jesus.
Thank you, Father, that you love us too much to let us stay where we are, that you want to continue to chip away what's in our life that is not you, Lord. That he might be, to our life, put on display for a watching world that desperately, desperately needs to see you. And we might have the privilege of showing him to them. And then, after we have shown them, we can tell them. Thank you, Father. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundant beyond all that we ask or think. For in the power that works in us, to him be the glory. In the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations forever and ever.